put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Tom, I want to know what's got you fired up right now about trumpet, about life, how the two intersect. This last year and a half has been a challenge, obviously, for, for a lot of us, uh, a scary time. Uh, I think so much about uh, freelancers and, and people that aren't affiliated with a, a group like the L.A. Phil, which has been really supportive of its musicians. Um, it, it's put a ding in all of our all of these organizations like like orchestras and some of them couldn't sustain it like the Met, you know, so they, they had to make terrible choices. Um, that being said, I uh, started this trumpet mastery course and it's been an incredible learning experience for me from everything. I, I, about a year and a half ago, I started doing more strength training, which I'd never done. So that's got me really excited um, about some things in my playing that I've never really uh, been present. And I can go into that sort of trumpet geekiness if you want, um, go down that rabbit hole. I'm happy to, to talk about nitty gritty about that. Well, just to just to interrupt very quickly, you were you were pointing to your lips where you're talking about strength training. So is it strength training in the actual chops? Yeah. And, and, and basically, I'll, I'll talk about generally, if I can come back and talk specifically about yes, that. But, absolutely. But, but ideas about that, a relatively short road in the context of my career, but has been really influential. And so I, I, I'd be happy to talk about that. And some real adaptations, real 180 degree changes in the way that I understand brass technique and, and fundamentals. So there's that. Um, the other thing is um, I've been doing some body work, whether it's um, bioenergetic work. Um, there's a guy named Alexander Lowen and his wife, they created a book. It, this is kind of an older book, but, but just getting into the idea of like um, certain things that we have in our body that are memories. Um, and sometimes thinking that our understanding how our body can, this is going to sound a little nonsensical, but our, how our body can actually be thinking for us um, and not necessarily a good way, um, that our body has associations. I really strongly believe that as human beings, if you want to back up to the life thing, as human beings, we build strong associations to events that have happened or that we hope won't happen or um, positive, ne negative things that have happened to us. It's a large shaper of how a life occurs to us and, and the direction that our life goes. Um, so if you believe that, you know, that those associations are important, um, we, we have 
um, kind of three different brains. We have our thinking brain, which is the biggest part of our brain. We have um, the sort of emotional center of our brain, and then we have the sort of reptilian brain, which is, you know, one is like survival, one is sort of the emotional vulnerability, and the other one is like, what is two plus two? What is four plus four? And what I've started to realize is that that thinking brain is the largest part and it's the loudest. Now, in certain situations, if we get into fight or flight, of course, our reptilian takes over and says, what do I do to survive? But the thinking brain can be for better, for worse. It, it can be a for better, for worse type of entity in, in, in our life. What I'm realizing is that some of the associations that we we devise up in our thinking brain start to live in our bodies. So like a very extreme example would, could, could be you go to speak or you go to perform in front of somebody and you're overcome with fear. And so you hold that in your your abdomen or you hold it sort of like in a in your navel or you, you hold it maybe in your hips or or in your shoulders or whatever that that becomes such an interwoven experience of of performing or get in front of people that even if i say to myself you know what logically there's no reason for me to be nervous i'm I'm not really nervous, but you find yourself, you get into that situation, and then all of a sudden you start feeling something which channels a thought. And you're like, I didn't want, I I don't really, there's no reason I'm nervous, but your body has that memory. So that's like a little snippet of something that I've dug into very deeply, very personally, understanding where I hold tension and try to unravel these knots, if you will, in different places in my body. So like Osho chakra breathing has been really powerful, really eye-opening and like like how certain parts of my body have been constricted through my own life experience. And so mm. I've bring, been bringing that into my teaching and I and my my goal for this fall is to dive into that even more. The, the next thing that I'm super excited about is um, I have this world premiere uh, by Steve Mackey. That is uh, really, really interesting, really fun. It's a, um, several different movements, uh, eight, nine, what is it, maybe 10 movements, um, where I'm premiering this with Dudamel and the LA Phil in October. Um, and I, I'm super excited about it, um, not only because it's new, but because of some of the challenges that he's offering and some of the things that this last year has afforded me to do as a trumpet player. Um, I've never been able to do before. So I'm very excited about um, bringing something new, a little bit, of, you know, extending the legacy of Tom Stevens, who pioneered so much new music. Um, it's exciting to be talking to a composer like Steve Mackey, who's very open, very creative. Um, you know, he's an electric shedding guitarist. So it's like, what's he going to, you know, the stuff he's come up with is like different sounding and cool and groovy. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Okay. Well, we can hear in your voice that you are excited about it. But I think I think it's interesting that you brought up how the the physicality is a, is affected by past experiences and how and how we kind of tense up, you know, like you said, why am I nervous playing at the campfire at uh at the summer camp? I had that exact experience years and years and years ago. I was n- nervous and it was just like kids. <laughs> around a campfire where I was a counselor for this summer camp and I was playing and I'm looking back and I'm like, why was I nervous? They don't care if I make a mistake. It's interesting that you bring this up because I just got off the call with a fellow named James Blackwell, who's a lead trumpet player 
Uh, he's in Pennsylvania now, but he spent some time in L.A. and Texas and everything. And he told me, and I don't know if this is going to be uh, published before or after this this interview, but he literally, the very thought, just the thought of playing trumpet brought a physical sensation to his mouth, like a, a burning sensation. Just it, it was just the neurological, because he had overplayed so much, and it's just the, the physical and the nerves are so intertwined. Just the thought of playing trumpet, he just got that burning sensation inside of him. Well, I think the, the other, just a, one other comment on that is like your, your experience with the campfire. Sometimes it's hard to know like what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Did you get nervous for some other, like, let, let's say you were born on a deserted island mm-hmm. and like somebody gave you this drum and a stick <laughs> and they say, hey, play us a song. Right. Like, I don't know how to play drums. You're like, fine, whatever. Bum, 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 bum. You'd be like, what? Yeah. Yeah, cool, whatever. Yeah, but sure, sure. If somebody responded to you like, are you serious, James? Like, you call that playing the drums? And then you might be like, mm-hmm. and you reflect. And then you start, then the next time you think about it. Hmm. So does it happen like that? Or did you start? Would you start from the first instance? Like, hey, play us the drum. You're like, no, I don't want to. Now, we could say... Well, maybe you have a shy personality or you had a bad experience that colored the way that that event happened to you. Like it colors the way that it occurred for you because somebody else who wasn't part of that conversation 30 feet away could have been like, nice drums, man. But you didn't hear that. Right. You heard it. And so you interpret. So what I'm saying is that human beings are meaning machines and that we want to make sense. And this is the tricky part. We want to make sense of our beliefs. So th- this brings me to a topic of and what I mean by that is that if you have a belief that performing is scary, then you're going to try to find things that reinforce that. You might use your language. You might notice certain things that like, did you see the way that person looked at me? It's like, it's like, oh, you know, and you start you start doing that because you have a belief that performing is 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 scary. Now, some people might have a, a different belief for whatever reason. Like you talk about James Morrison. Um, I talked. He was part of our course just recently. Fascinating, amazing guy. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to talk with him. He talks about like if you're ever nervous, it's because at the fundamental, you're asking yourself a, a, a question and the subconscious is answering that question. The subconscious doesn't know um, sort of like good from bad. It's sort of like two plus two is four. So you say, um, he, he expresses it like like if you're an interviewer and if you didn't want to hear your questions, you would say, so Tom, how long have you been playing? I would say, I've been playing trumpet for 20 years. You know, and but that's how the subconscious works. You just say, um, how come I always mess up under stress? Well, you mess up under stress because in the, it's just going to give you an answer from maybe your set of beliefs or maybe your experience or it, it's what you believe is going to be answered. So James talks about this in a very fascinating, simplistic way. He says, at the very least, why wouldn't you ask me, be asking yourself, how can this be the most amazing performance I've ever given? Like, what's wrong with that? Because if you ask your subconscious that, and I, I did this for the first time about three days ago, four days ago in a concert at the LA Phil, um, we were doing The Princess Bride at the Hollywood Bowl. And I just said to myself, this is so weird. I feel like weird. I'm not going to, I'm just going to out loud ask myself, or even just at the front of my conscience, like, 
how can this be the best performance that I've ever given? You know, it screamed at me instantaneously, no hesitation. I asked this very simple question, positive question. It said, relax. There was no question. And I knew at my gut, that is how I'm going to have an awesome performance is if I relax, not passive, trust. And I just found it fascinating. I didn't know what the answer was going to be. I was kind of joking. Like, how is this going to be the most amazing performance? Relax. It was just, it was so quick. So um, the, our, our beliefs and our ability to perform under pressure or in certain situations, um, our beliefs really color that. And, and to sort of share that nugget of a pearl from James Morrison is ask yourself a, a a sort of positive inducing subconscious question that like it's just gonna make your brain ask like how can this be awesome how can this be great how can this be a great learning experience those kinds of questions will really Mm. make your subconscious uh, respond in a better way you know in my experience and i'm and i'm talking about myself more than anything looking back at events in my life times that i've fallen short and just haven't given my best performance i've kind of realized that in a way I was sort of comfortable with failure, if that makes any sense. Like, this is kind of my comfort zone. Maybe I uh, embarrassed myself. Maybe I wasn't thrilled with how I played. But this is what I'm used to. This is comfortable for me. And in some ways, I think that me personally and, and, and other people that I've known, actually succeeding is, 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 can be terrifying because it means that you have to step out of what's comfortable for you, which is, unfortunately, <laughs> falling short of what you're capable of. Yeah, there's a book called The, uh, the Big Leap, and it talks about this thing called the upper limiting action. And so we do this all the time. Some people might call it self-sabotaging, but like he calls it upper limiting um, belief or upper limiting action. And it's where you... Um, just exactly what you said is that you might do something that's like sabotaging or keeps you in that comfort zone because stepping out into, into something new or better can be scary. This is one of the things that one of the kind of a weird segue into like recording is that you recording yourself. Like you said, everything in this interview will now be forever in onto the (laughs) internet. But, But the same, same thing is kind of true for, for making a recording and, or any kind of artistic endeavor is that it takes a degree of vulnerability. In fact, our strength comes from a sense of vulnerability of, you know, like, I remember when I made my first recording, it was like, actually, when I made the John Williams recording, I had a friend of mine um, who played on the session, a tuba player, great, great player, Doug Tornquist. He said, are you going to have a release party? And I said, mm, I don't know. And he goes, you know why it's a release party? It's because you're letting it go. I never thought about it like that. It was like, oh, here's me promoting. He's like, maybe it's more that you're just, you don't have control over it anymore. It's like, hmm. <sighs> and I thought that was really awesome. And so two things can happen from that. One, I, I it's a re- truly released. Like, that was the representation of the best I could do at that moment. The other positive thing is because if that was a success for you, and this could be scary for some people, it's like, now people kind of expect you to sound like that. And I, when I did my first recording, I remember the engineer, the producer said to me, 
this is going to be like a benchmark for you. You're going to try as hard as you as you can to sound as good as this recording moving forward. But it's true. I, I think that's one of the benefits of of stepping out of your comfort zone. You know, is that if you're willing for that. But but it's it also makes sense why some people wouldn't want to do that. Your first album was that trumpet call. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, what what was the process? I mean, what made you think? I've got a great job with the Atlanta Symphony. What gave you the notion, the audacity to think I have to have recording? What was what was that process like? That process was totally a stepping out process. I, I had no idea where I was going to get the money. I had a good job, but I also had a house payment and like student loans and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so it was like, I need to figure out why do I want to do this? Because I was in Atlanta for a few years and I thought, what's my next step? Like artistically as a, you know, kind of finding my own way. I, I didn't grow up as some wunder kid. Like I just get my feet underneath me in terms of like um, being able to play principal in a job. So once I, I spent a few years there, I was like, okay, I'm still getting better. But um, and I know I have room to grow, but like what's going to be the impetus for that? Like there weren't any principal jobs open right at that moment. Chicago just gotten taken, like, you know, San Fran, um, New York, Philly, Cleveland, Boston, they were all taken. So I was like, well, I don't see myself going anywhere. What's my next, what's my next sort of um, pursuit? And so I hooked up with Elaine Martone, uh, who was the Empire Brass kind of telarc producer she had done a lot of recordings with the LA uh, with the Atlanta Symphony um so I don't even remember how I raised them I had to raise $17,000 you know and and that might seem like a lot of money or a little bit of money just you know wherever you are in your life but at that point I was like I don't have $17,000 just sitting around like not too long off the Marine Band, which was a good paying job, but I wasn't getting rich or anything. I stepped out. I, I don't I don't remember how I found the money. I, I found a way to get the money and worked with Rebecca Wilt, who was great. It was a complete sort of, it wasn't fake it till you make it, but I was like, I don't know what this process is like. I'm just going to throw it out there. I know that's very generic to say, but it was basically intention was to like up my up my game hold myself accountable, try to just up my game overall. And and I think it worked. I mean, it. I think Jim Wilt heard it and it, it helped him sort of get an idea of my playing before I came out here. And, you know, it was just sort of like stepping in a little to the unknown. Like, and I, here's the other thing is that I found this little notebook my parents let me have back. It, it was sitting in their house up until like, I don't know, maybe 2010 or something, or maybe it was even later. I don't know if you know this, but here's a little book. And I wrote down all these mile markers, like intentions, like 1998, I want this to happen. By by 2000 something, I want this to happen. And one of the things was like, make my own record, solo recording. And I I'd missed the date by a few years, but like, I forgot that I'd done that. But it had set this sort of intention in motion. And when the right time was there, I struck, you know. Um, it seemed like the right time to do it, and I just kind of went for it. And and I think it was a, it was a really good experience for me as a, a you know, developing trumpet player. Okay, so it did it did contribute to your current job because I was going to say that's an expensive accountability lesson. 
$17,000. There are cheaper ways to have accountability. But it seemed like the right move for me. I had no, I, I had no thought that this would help me. It was purely personal development. It took me a couple years to make my money back. I mean, it was not like a great seller. I had no idea what I was doing in terms of like the, the back end of that. That's a whole nother conversation about what it's like that making the recording, getting that finished product, even getting what well, we used to say CD, but like even having a finished product on, on YouTube or whatever is, is like half the process. The other half of the process is if you want to do it, like get it out there. It takes a lot of effort to, mm -hmm connect and network and like get people to your product i mean it you know it's a it's a whole different ball game now in terms of social media and branding and all that kind of stuff to to kind of create funnels with your products whether they be some kind of device you invent or a breathing bag or a recording i mean this is a whole different thing now but it's a definitely it's not just plug and play there's a book called zero to one by peter Thiel. And he was one of the founders of like PayPal with Elon. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he says in this book, Zero to One, is that you can have an amazing, the most amazing product in the world and a crappy marketing team, nobody's going to buy it. Now, he, the opposite is, is also true. You can have a mediocre kind of like how many of us have bought something? They're like, eh, I don't know. But you were compelled to buy it because it was a great marketing. This is the same is true for recordings, in my opinion. You can have the best recording on in the world and a few people share with a few other people, but nobody's going to be as passionate and share it as much as you should in terms of, you know, and so um, I don't have to sit here and, and prove to you that like there are great, there are good artists out there that are super successful because of the marketing and distribution and the team behind it. Um, and there's also like, incredible artists that like you only hear about like after they die and you find some recording you're like holy crap who is i never heard of this person each of us i think has our own balance of that what feels right to us but if you want to make a recording and get it out there it, it takes effort strategies big time strategies and you have to study that almost as much as it is to study the music that you want to record speaking of shameless plugs I want to know about your trumpet mastery course because I was just on the the sales page and it's one of the it's a really good sales page, really good. I hired help with that because it's not my skill set. You know, I'm well, I'm good at speaking uh, and helping yeah. people. I want to pick your brain a little bit about that because we were chatting a little bit before we officially started the interview, and you were talking about some of the profound effects that it's had on you uh, as a player, as a teacher, just as an all around good person because I know that you've done a lot of teaching master classes clinics and everything before that but it sounds to me like starting this has just taken that to a new level what are some of the ways that you've been impacted with this so, so the trumpet mastery course is um I started it last summer uh, I did June through August uh, like 12 or 13 weeks that was very new um, I hired a, a little help with the logistics on the back end but I I hired guests the tuition that people play, uh, that people pay, give me the flexibility to hire people that I really respect and pay them a respectable fee. And so I basically got back into student mode myself. This is going to sound like it's very sporadic 
Um, but sometimes that's how things happen. Um, it's you, you don't lay out like your progress, your, your plan for growth and just follow it to T. It's, it's messy. So I started not this last March, the March before. Um, I started with this idea that like, well, looks like we're not going to be working for a little bit. I want to get strong. I basically just started brainstorming, asking questions. Okay, what does that mean? I feel really out of touch with the strength. I, I've always kind of poo-pooed this idea of like get really strong because of certain beliefs I'd had from certain teachers that maybe I misinterpreted. So so I reached out to people like Julie Landsman. I read some books by Charlie Butler from you know the uh, Bill Adam approach, starting to think about like what strength looked like. And on one small sliver of the pie of learning, I started realizing and valuing much more what stamina, endurance. And when I stepped into some of this stuff, you know how your perspective of something really colors your weight, your ability to define it and understand it. My perspective of strength training was so superficial that when I got into it, my perspective of everything else changed. So I don't know if that makes sense. So like once I got on one, the other side of this sort of you know, one way mirror that I didn't really understand. I stepped in it and I started looking back from an anecdotal way. Like I started thinking back to when people would said something to me or a teacher said this or a teacher showed me this. I'm like, oh, 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 I, all those make more sense now. And that's when it's like, I sort of feel like um, if you're playing a video game, you go into a new map and you haven't discovered, you, the map is like all opaque. And you see your little character there. Maybe it's like World of Warcraft or something, you know? It's like you see your character and only one part of the map is illuminated. Only till you step into the other parts and it's like, pink, And then it becomes, oh my gosh. I knew this was all here, but now I, I, I sort of waded into the unknown. And I, I understand not only where I was, but I see like a new paths forward. And that's kind of what it felt like for me in terms of strength. The same way of thinking about that happened with me in body work. I had Gabriel Cassone come give a, a class. Do you know Gabriel Cassone? No. Oh, amazing, amazing. Not only soloist, he's the kind of guy that can play Brandenburg on a natural trumpet. Um, and I've also, like, I heard him play a concerto on a key bugle, like the one that Haydn was written for. Also, I've heard him absolutely mesmerize an audience with Barrio Sequenza. And so, I mean, the range of the, this guy... What's the guy's name again? Gabriel Cassone. I'm going to look him C-A-S-S-O-N-E. He lives, I believe, in Milan. Long story short, I met Gabri about six, seven, six or so years ago. He kind of planted the seed in me of, of these ideas of like body work, bioenergetics, different types of meditation sort of um, Osho, chakra breathing, but very superficially. In fact, he gave me a little memory drive that I was like, I don't even know how to use this stuff. I, I was into meditation, blah, 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 but this was different. So flash forward to this last summer, I started thinking about this and I reached out to him and something in my gut said, you have to reach out to Gabri. There's something for you to learn. And so I reached out to him. I had him as a class my mind was blown in terms of like things that I had not been aware of, like making connections between mind and body and what I've talked to you about, like where do we hold these beliefs? 
more and more and more than ever, I believe that the body, body holds these, I'm not going to say traumatic, but these significant beliefs or events, they reside somewhere in our bodies. And this is where maybe people have chronic pain sometimes or, um, you know, some ailments become because there's a lack of flow in the body, which I, I believe more and more. So I started working with him one-on-one. Um, and this has just had a profound effect on my ability to breathe better, my ability to notice when tension comes in. Kind of, I think of it like... um any of you out there that are boaters, you know, a fid. Do you know what a fid is? So imagine you have a clenched fist or imagine you have a very tight knot. Now, a lot of times what we are, our approach as human beings is like, I notice the knot without valuing why the knot is there. I'm going to try to remove this knot in the same way that the knot was created. Okay. Yeah. I see. So like I I I I have this sense of tension and and you know you're you're stressed all the time blah 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 and I need to find more balance in my life and and I'm going to work harder. I'm going to find that balance. You're you're trying to go about it the same way. Mm-hmm. And so what I started noticing and so what what a fid is in boating terms you have a tight knot and a fid is a sharp wooden dowel that sort of loosens one knot. Okay. So to think okay. of like a a pencil you know, getting between your, your clenched fist and, and loosening it. And what happens is it could be disruptive. It could be like, I don't have control anymore. Okay. And then I ask myself, could control be in a different way? Like, what is control? What What is the end game? Do I want control or do I want ease? Do I want flow? Could I have control, in air quotes, through ease? And so what does body work did through kundalini meditation or chakra breathing it's still disruptive it's still like i'm stepping into something that's uncomfortable but it gives me new options of body awareness and how to use my body in in new more healthy ways so that's been massive and then the third thing that I'll, i'll end your this long long answer on is i've gotten better at working with people in in a more finding and aligning with their strengths, really listening to them, not only their trumpet playing, but really watching, observing their body, observing their language, observing their beliefs through language, um, and and noticing habits and sort of dispositions to become a better coach that helps guide them, not just tell them what to do, but really in a slightly sometimes uncomfortable way, get them to think for themselves more and more. And I want to be that that guiding light to not just say, you know what you need to do, you need to be more focused. Mm. Sometimes maybe that direct needs to be happen, but other times it's like, how do you hear the sound? And ask them questions and sort of guide them in a way that really gets them thinking. Because isn't mm-hmm. that the end goal is autonomy, that you want to be able to, not close out other advice, but have the patterns, language patterns and belief system that help generate creativity, flexibility, resiliency in your mind, those kinds of things. I've, I've heard, um, 
the difference between a coach and a consultant, and I'm talking in kind of business terms here, but a consultant will come into a business and say, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. A coach is going to be more uh, like what you're describing, like you're, you're guiding the person. You, you want them to kind of become their own teacher. You want to gently lead them to the answer rather than just say, you need to do, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do that. And that's not quite as effective. Uh, sometimes, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Is there times where it's, it's more effective to just tell a student, you need to do this to get this result? You could say that and say like, here's what I believe. But it doesn't matter if the student, if the student doesn't believe that, if they're, or they don't have a conceptual understanding of what that means, mm-hmm. it would, sometimes it would be better to guide them through questions, you know, um, and, and to get, to get to the root. Sometimes it's clear. It's like, well, look, you're not going to play Ravel Piano Concerto if you, A, can't single tongue the speed or double tongue the speed, whatever you choose. If you can't do it on one note, you're not going to be able to do it on multiple notes. So like you need to learn to do that on one note. That's like plug and play, like start there, you know? And, um, but you know, in in terms of of bigger things, like some of the bigger factors that I notice in, in teaching in this course is that many times the person doesn't believe that they can find the answer. That's not a great place to be because the reality is that in school you had weekly lessons, which I don't even know if are the best. It depends on how they're structured. Um, but you could you could easily fall into a sense of laziness with that. So like, oh, I worked for a couple of days, but you know what? I, I'm gonna have my lesson in a few more days, and I'll ask questions there. And it's like, yeah, but we need to. But really, the most time that we spend practicing is by ourselves. And so it, it seems like it would be good for the coach or the teacher to really get the student to like learn the process of what is problem solving look like to you um, with some sort of reflectiveness with long view and, and immediate view. Like we need to find a, a beautiful balance between those, a beautiful balance between patience and um, attentiveness, you know, it, it's different for everybody, you know, and that's one of the things I love is, is, helping somebody make just one more step, one more step in the right direction, which could be the opposite direction of their default. Uh, I'll give you an example, very, very timely example. This morning I was giving a master class to TMC at 7 a.m. <laughs> that's <laughs> our, because of West Coast, I guess that's, I'm forced into that sometimes. But, <laughs> but one of the young men in the studio um, I've been encouraging him for a long time about air and relaxation, trying different ways to connect with him, getting him to experience it, maybe through tools, maybe through meditation, blah, 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 all these different things. And so finally he played this morning. I was like, wow, that's, that's way different. And he go, and I said, well, tell me about that process. What, what was your week? Like he said, well, I, I decided that, I could let go of some of my practice and I just needed to do 30 minutes of breathing work. And he's like, I think in his mind, he thought this is going to be a waste of time. I'm losing something. But that was him stepping into the unknown and giving him the space. I Letting him come to that on his own was way more powerful than me saying, do 30 minutes of breathing because he doesn't know what he's going for. Mm. Mm. 
Right. You know, I mean, he has an idea, but he didn't self-generate that. He's, I, I'm trying to pull him into my reality rather than mm-hmm. I want to open up a new reality for him. So when he did that, on the surface, it felt like, I, I don't have time to do this. And then we sort of, and then I would say, what are we trying to get better? Your range? Okay. What, how would your air affect range? Well, positively. So you are working on your range. Okay, well, how would this affect the double tonguing? He gets a little stiff here. I said, would this... He goes, yes, that would help. So you are working on that. And it's just... But mm. but right. creating the, right. the context for that person to make that determination, to give them the space to say, like, ask them a, ask them a question and maybe just let it be silent for a little bit rather than mm-hmm. say, should I use my air better? Yeah. It was like, well, what do you think? And let them think through that. There's a book called More Time to Think by Mary Klein. She's, in terms of business, she was, um, I don't know what you exactly call her, maybe a coach. She wrote a book called Time to Think and then another book called More Time to Think. Um, The audio book of More Time to Think is just super soothing. It's awesome. Um, But she talks about like, like, I guess she does like executive coaching and just like heads of state and stuff like that. And we talked about the three brains, the thinking, the emotional, the reptilian. Many times people know what the right answer is, but it might not be the loudest answer in terms of like their inner dialogue. If you came to me and you said to me before that concert I gave a couple of days ago, Tom, how is this going to be the best concert you've ever given? My thinking brain might be like, well, I'm going to focus super hard um, and I'm going to listen as much as I can. And, you know, I'm going to stay really in time. That would be one answer. But another answer that came more intuitively was I need to relax. Will relaxing help me listen better? Yes. Will it help me pay with better body? Yes. Will it help me. You know, so it's it's that I think opening up a student's creativity and and mindset to to help them make distinctions on their own because a lot of times they know but they don't trust their own voice. That's fascinating. You find uh, alternate ways to to address the issue that they're uh, looking to address because oftentimes, and I'm I'm as guilty as as anyone. You, you just think, well, just more time playing, and that's what I need. I need more time, more time, more time, and that's going to fix it, and then it, and it doesn't get fixed. And what I heard you saying is that maybe doing this thing that is not specifically related to playing trumpet, well, maybe there are ways that are related to playing trumpet. If you're going to do breathing exercises, well, of course it's going to make you a better player. So you're not necessarily playing, but you're, you're contributing to the success. And also, uh, when I was hearing you talking about this young man, it seems to me he just learned to trust the work that he'd already put in to his development. When he let go of thinking, I have to play, I have to play, I have to play, he realized, I know what I'm doing. I, I already do this. And maybe he just learned to trust his his own progress and his own development as a player yeah and and actually towards the end of the class we came he said well well um we came down to the to this basic idea well if i'm strong enough and, and this isn't wasn't his words but this was basically the end end idea he said well like how do i get to this place as a default and 
Um, I said, well, what it depends on, like, you can think of all these different schools of teaching. You could talk about, let's talk about Caruso. How does Caruso approach things? It says you create, like, you set, you create strength in that. And ideally, what that does is that gets your body to trust. Because we're talking about, like, well, how do, how would he, because James would talk about, James Morrison would talk about, like, well, two things need to happen with range. You either turn on the faucet more air. It could be a big aperture, but a certain speed of air will get you a high note. If you want that note soft, then you're going to have to learn to have the nozzle be smaller. You'll still need the same speed of air to create that. It just, it'll be different because the nozzle's smaller. He said, well, how do we do that? And I said, well, there's different ways. You could say Caruso, they got you to figure out that you can contain the nozzle. Maybe the result is that you relax. Of course, they talk about timing and freedom, but this should lead to, in their ideology, relaxation because there's good balance. Well, let's let's go to the opposite. Let's go to Chicago school and they say, wind and song, air, blow, 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 or buzzing basics, blow, blow, yeah. So that, in, in some ways, I'm not saying it's better or worse at all. It depends on the disposition of the student. But they're both trying to get to the same thing. Caruso, I set, lips are together. I have sort of the ability to compress and have a small aperture. Then I put the air through, and now we should find a good marriage. Chicago school, blow, in some ways, ignore the feeling that, right, they say this, like, don't worry about how it feels, blow, eventually, if you kept doing that, you would figure out a way to get the aperture smaller, because the air would be the constant. So both work, it depends on if some student is sort of like has a healthy recklessness about them, then the Chicago might be better for them. Because the structure here is going to make their air tight. But if you get them to be free, they'll learn to do just what they need to do with the aperture. If the air is sort of like, <sighs> okay, then you might talk to that student about, okay, we need to bring in focus here with that. You have this great constant um, if they're struggling. Does, does that make sense in terms of like different yes. shades of like different Absolutely. sides? Yeah. Um, and you could go through and all of them are trying to get the same thing. They just have a different, um, a different doorway. And so what I love is, is find is bringing, illuminating the similarities between these different schools and helping the student find where they relate Right. somewhere in the middle, you know? And he said, you know what? So I, I find that fascinating and, and I feel it helps empower the student to, um, not only be more curious about other approaches, but mm -hmm. also understanding, again, really important, how do I relate to that? Well, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and there's more than one way to learn how to blow air through a horn. <laughs> well, we only have a couple of minutes. I think we have like five minutes left, because you have things to do, and I have things to do. I got 10 minutes, but whatever you think. 10 minutes. Okay. It's on, like Donkey Kong. <laughs> All right, I wanna I wanna know more because you mentioned your uh, this piece that you're doing with uh, Dudamel. He just says it so casually. I'm playing this with Dudamel, <laughs> but he's my boss. What's the name of it again? 
I think he's still working on it, but um, it might be it might be this shivery. Shivery, okay. Or like trumpet fantasy would be like the subtitle, perhaps. Steve still hasn't decided. Um, but there's all all these movements are very interesting titled movements. Um, like I can't even pronounce some of them. Okay, it looks like something from the Lord of the Rings or something like this. Dipnosophist looks like a. Dentistry and sophistry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but these are all like really um, interesting ideas. You know, one like chivalry is like kind of making a uh, to make a noise or to like a calamity or celebration, perhaps. Um, and it's like, how's my sound here? It's OK. Uh, I could use a little work, Tom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so. One of the things that's really cool about this, and I'm not totally warmed up here, but experimenting with different sounds. So like maybe starting with like some half valve stuff and maybe some um, like almost like like a real a real sense of like emotion outpouring this first thing. So maybe like on. You know, doing different half valves and swoops and swipes and it's really it's so creative and and each movement has kind of its own like intensity and, mm-hmm. and distinctness like the next movement might be like rips over the harmonic series of the flugelhorn um or like another one might be piccolo trumpet and in sort of harmony piccolo trumpet real just really interesting characters like almost like goldenberg and schmiel on crack you know and each movement is like <laughs> Kind of like pictures at an exhibition for trumpet solo through like these wordscapes. It really, okay. he's he's just really interesting. So I, it's hard as all hell, but um, I think people are gonna. It's 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 a true work of art. It's, so it's pictures at an exhibition on an acid trip. Yeah, essentially. Okay, yeah. we'll go with that. <laughs> we have to watch the clock because I have a philosophical question. My question is: Let's say it's Tom Hooten who's fresh out of the Marine Band, and you have your, was it the Atlanta job that was right after that? or uh, I was associate in Indianapolis for two years. Okay. okay, so you have, let's say you're in Indianapolis, you are given this opportunity, like the conductor says, okay, this, this fellow wrote this piece, and we want you to play this. And we're talking about the piece that you've just been showing off. How do you think that that Tom Hooten would have responded to that challenge versus the Tom Hooten we've been listening to just you're fired up about it totally got it you're, you've had this attitude like I've got this I would have been freaking out because um I really didn't have in my range a concert e on my C trumpet on my normal equipment I would have had to think about different I, mean, I wouldn't have been freaking out I would have been like I would have probably gone for it um but I would have probably had to explore you know, maybe slight differences in equipment to help me with this. Um, it's, some of the piccolo stuff is quite high too. And I, this last year has really launched me into access to new things. So in all honesty, if back then I, I, I might even have had to say to the composer, like, look, I don't, I don't have a concert E on my C trumpet. Like is any other work around? I mean, maybe I would tr- say, Hey, can we try it on piccolo? But even still it would limit him in what he was trying to write. Um, I, I don't know. I, hmm. It's a really interesting question. Well, I get the sense that you wouldn't be brimming just with 
the fire coming out of your eyeballs the way it is now back then? Probably would have been a little bit more nervous. Right, right. You know, even when I, Atlanta was my first job playing principal. Why? Because I was barely qualified to do that then when I first got that job. I, you know, if, if, if you look back at my career, it's basically like work hard, practice hard. What's the next step? Oh, I got in the Marine Band. Great. Okay. Grateful. Let's look around. Let's keep working. Four years later, Indianapolis, busting my ass, taking lessons up in Chicago, you know, grinding it away. Okay. I got Atlanta. Six years later, I get it. LA. I mean, I was just trying to step, step stone, you know? So like, it's hard to know like how, what different path could have happened if I was challenged with something like this. I definitely played things that were beyond me and I honestly don't know how I did it. Cutting corners, like, that's why I think like good fundamentals, I'm not saying I had them, but like being well-rounded can, um, and, and trusting in the longer path of your journey, trusting simple truths in your playing. Easy air in, easy air out, not too much pressure. Like the, starting there, easy in, easy out, not too much pressure. I really challenge people to see how well they can do that. Like you're not holding back the air at all. And the question is, how do you manage that? If we all think that's true, right? I think if we pulled a thousand trumpet players and I would say, should you hold back the air? I don't think anybody would say, yeah, a little bit where? Oh, in the throat or in the chest. Nobody would say that. How many of those thousand trumpet players do that? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. In my interest, why? There's a reason. They didn't say, I want to hold the air back. But there's a a very wise part of the body that knows intuitively, is this going to work or is it not going to work? Now, I might have learned it a long time ago and held on to that. It might not be true anymore. But what I love is finding... um, a, for us, a finding us a way to get back into that and trust that intuition. Because if I said to you, you know, the only place that we resist the airstream is with the aperture. Yeah, that makes sense. No, but like, do you know what that feels like? Like, do you know what it's like to take and put it through something, you know, like, like this small, you know, like a little nail. It's like, yeah. or to put it through something like this and go, no, do you, do we know what that feels like? I don't think so. And if you did, then letting go would be much easier. But if you're people are like, okay, Tom, that makes sense. How do I find that? Well, start with adhering to the three truths. Easy air in, easy air out, not too much pressure. It might be difficult. You maybe can't do all the things you normally do when you skip steps. It doesn't have to be perfect, but try to adhere to those. And over time, you will have created the environment for healthy things to grow, which takes vulnerability, patience, and persistence. Well, folks, we've had Tom Hooten bringing the heat on today's episode. And uh, if uh, anything that he has said has piked your interest, if, if he's got you fired up about playing trumpet like he did me, then uh, check out his course. It's trumpetmasterycourse.com, but also tomhooten.com. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks for having me. 
Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb, signing off.